Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 25 of Tversky Tuesdays. I am your host, Hananya Abraham, and today we will be starting chapter 9. I appreciate everyone's feedback and communication. Anyone that has anything they want to share or say, ask, or maybe even tell me how to do something better, please feel free to reach out at koshercounseling at gmail.com. So the last time we talked about the amazing uh, um, situation that we have regarding our happiness of perfectionism, and we actually gave an example of uh, a pianist, Vladimir Horowitz, who honestly, until reading this book for the first time, it was not a name I never heard of. And I honestly forgot about the name till the last episode when I was reading that name. And soon thereafter, I had an opportunity to go online and look at, or should I say, listen to some of his music. And I got to say, it was absolutely amazing. I think that concept of just trying to be better than... The way I sort of say it, and I think which is the concept that we were talking about, the way I say it in my, in my therapy room is, how are we being better today than we were yesterday? And what do I need to do to be better tomorrow than I am today? You're striving higher, as my friend and fellow therapist and educator uh, Donnie Stown likes to say. We strive higher so that we can always want to be better. Sometimes, by the way, being better means also being content with where we are. But that doesn't mean that we can say, all right, I can sit back and relax and not work on myself. And that's also the concept of where happiness comes from. Happiness doesn't come from perfectionism. If anything, you're not going to find it anywhere close to perfectionism. You're only going to find happiness on that growth and becoming better and wanting to become better on that journey and realizing what we're on. So that was going back for our episode uh, 24. Continuing over here on chapter 9, the ability to be compassionate. Being self-aware, says Dr. Torsky, humble, purposeful in our choices, patient, and on a path to self-improvement are all important ingredients for happiness, but they are not enough. I think that's so in line with what we've been talking about, of becoming better. It's not just about self-improvement, or it's not just about making purposeful choices, being patient, being self-aware, humble, all very important characteristics that we need to have as, as individuals, as parents, as educators, as students even, and as teachers. Unlike animals who are totally motivated by self-gratification, we human beings have the ability to look beyond our personal needs and do things for others. Compassion is the unique human ability to care about other people, to be considerate of others and sensitive to their needs. There are so many different ways to think about this and to actually talk about this. One of the things that come to mind is, and maybe we can have a whole discussion on this and I could use some direction because I think we should have a separate discussion on this, is how a person would go about addressing another human being that might want to have um, different words used to describe them. So it's become, I think, a little bit too common of a practice for people to have their pronouns be, and have to say what the pronouns are. While I understand the concept, I think it's because people want to be understood for who they are, 
I don't think it has to be for everyone because I dress and I am a certain way and if I identify as a certain way as a male personally, I don't I think it goes without saying of what my pronouns should be. That being said, some people don't feel that way. And I think that's where one of the areas of what being compassionate is. Being compassionate is about being sensitive to others. I've heard people talk about it, and I know I've been in situations as well as a therapist and as someone that has spoken in public before. I don't have to agree with what other person needs or wants, but I would I would be wrong, and I would be a non-compassionate person if deliberately I would go about saying a different pronoun than what a person actually wants to be called. Because a person does have a right to be called what they want to be called. In public, to make it a, an overall setting where I have to say whatever it is that you want me to say, I don't think it has to be done. But when it comes to individuals, if they want something, I would be remiss and I think I would be probably wrong to be saying things in a way where I would make that person uncomfortable. So that's what he's saying over here, to be considerate of others and sensitive to their needs. We can even help people whom we do not know, people who are total strangers, thanks to one of the unique components of the human spirit, the ability to emphasize. We can identify with people in need, and knowing how we would appreciate help, we can provide help for them. And I think that's one of the things that have been going on now in America of, like we're saying before, different pronouns, different um, powers of certain races and ethnic backgrounds, how to help people of different cultures and stuff. I think that's coming from a place of, yeah, we should be more compassionate towards others. I don't think it's to one area of minority over another. But if anyone thinks that it's not true, that means they're not being sensitive to that specific culture. Compassionate empathy, says Dr. Torsky. Do animals feel joy? After their stomachs are full, they act as though they are, they are quite content. And we as humans, too, can feel content when our hunger is, is abated. However, this is not quite the same as feeling joy. Even the elation of winning a jackpot is not the unique human feeling of joy. It is merely another instant of satisfying the acquisitive drive, which is present in animals as well. And I think joy as a feeling is something that doesn't last a long time. There are feelings of joy that are rather unique to human beings, such as the joy of achievement, of completing a difficult task, of making a new discovery, or celebrating the, the success of others. I would say one of the areas of joy that I, I personally like being a part of, both personally, with my kids and my own children, as a therapist when we're working on something, is when a person is able to come to the, a self-actualization slash growth of a specific area. So let's say it's a child trying to figure out how to put on their boots and their snow pants and their gloves all on their own and make sure that they're po properly bundled up. There's a certain joy that comes about in that self-accomplishment. When you have a client that sort of is able to help process a, a trauma in a way of that, having a realization for themselves. Or a personal example of reading a book that I finally finished. It took me, took me a very long time. Phenomenal, phenomenal book that I would recommend. Uh, titled uh, uh, The Teen Whisperer by Mike Linderman. And it's so helpful both personally and professionally regarding how he thinks about the concepts of teenagers and how to go about working with them 
as, as a parent. But I learned a lot from that book. But there are certain things he says in there that it was through his teachings that I had like, this aha moment. And I never had a book that taught me more aha moments than that book. But that's a joy that's that's pretty something that only happens in human beings, like Dr. Dr. Torsky is saying. Many of us experience joy when we saw Neil Armstrong take his first steps on the moon. Well, I think he's obviously dating himself when he can say that because this happened way before a lot of us that are listening to this were even born. And we felt profound sorrow when the Discovery space flight exploded in midair. Animals probably also feel something like sadness when they are hurt or experience a loss. But that is not the same as the grief human beings can feel. It's a known, it's a known uh, scientific uh, fact when they talk about when a parent of or an animal sees a child not trapped or somewhere, how, what the, how far they will go to help that child out and not leave their side. Or when a child dies, let's say there's um, you know, birds that would touch a wire that would get electrocuted and die, how they obviously feel sorrow but yet they also need, need to protect themselves. And I forgot what the number is of how long they would stay by that dead animal's corpse. And then they move on because they don't have the same level of emotional connection to another human being. The way human beings have, an animal doesn't have it even toward their, their, own, their, own, their own offspring. One of the... Well, you know, we'll save it for a different time, but I think when it comes to, I, I think the dove is the only bird that it only has one mate for life. So if that mate dies, it'll, it'll, stay, it'll, it'll stay single for the rest of its life. And I think it sort of shows why they're, um, I know, it, uh, I don't know exactly where it is. I'm, it's a drawing, I'm drawing a blank right now and uh, maybe someone can uh, find me that place, but I know there are certain human beings that are considered like a dove. Um, I know that in Judaism it comes up in, in in one or two places where we're considered like a like a dove, like um like a yona, because of the uh, connection that we would have to a, to our spouses. A while back, several coal miners were trapped hundreds of feet below the surface of Earth, certain to die if they could not be, be reached in time. People sat with their eyes glued to their television, watching the rescue efforts and feeling the anguish of the miners' wives and families. When each miner was brought out of the mine, there were shouts of joy by people who were hundreds of miles away, sharing the relief of the miners' family, while still feeling the agony of those loved ones who continued to be in great danger. When the, when the last of the trapped miners were rescued, the joy was sold by everyone from coast to coast. People hugged each other in jubilation. I know that when there was a soccer team, um, I want to say in the Philippines or, or Taiwan, that were trapped um, in a cave that the tide had risen, they uh, were able to uh, rescue them. There was even one of the rescue scuba divers. One of them were, uh, died in, in, that, in that saving of, the, of that whole team. The whole world was watching. There was something that everyone was, the phenomenon behind it was, was captured by everyone. These miners and their families, continues this story over here from Dr. Torsky, were strangers to many of us, but they didn't prevent us from sharing in their feelings. There was a spiritual, this was a spiritual experience. The ability to share others' joy or grief is uniquely human, a significant component of, of the human spirit. When it comes to animals, it doesn't work that way. If one animal is missing its spouse, we don't necessarily... 
There is no such thing as, as, as the birds on the other side of America finding out about it and saying, oh, how can we help find that spouse? And no, I'm not referring to a movie uh, that talks about you know a, a fish finding Nemo that would look to the other end of its world to find, to find its mom. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about the knowing of how to have... Well, in that movie, it's it's one specific example, and it's a story, and it's a movie of the animals doing that. Other than that, you won't find animals that would put themselves in a position to uh, know the whereabouts of another of another animal. It's only human beings, like what Dr. Torsky is saying, that that happens to. We generally do not have much difficulty in sharing the joy of others, but we may guard ourselves from feeling their pain. In my early days as a rabbi, I had the distressing experience of officiating at the funeral of a three-year-old child who had drowned. The following day, I made a condolence call and found a number of family members and close friends sitting together. One by one, each person left the room, and I was left alone with the mother who cried out her bitter heart. I listened to her, but could not find anything to say that might be comforting. The next day, the scene was repeated. Everyone left the room, and the mother cried to me. This went on for several days. Then I received a phone call from the mother's parents thanking me for what I was doing for Beverly. I was perplexed. I wasn't doing anything for Beverly. I had not been able to think of anything to say to give her any sort of relief from her grief. But eventually I understood what was happening. Beverly's family and close friends were so personally affected by this terrible tragedy that they could not listen to Beverly's expression of pain. They were suffering too much to be present in her grief. Instead, they would make conversation about any other subject to avoid touching on the tragedy. When I came in, everyone would leave the room, and only then would Beverly have the opportunity to cry and release their grief. True, I had nothing to say, but I was able to listen, he writes here in, uh, in italics, and that provided an area of comfort. Sometimes, at least you know, when it comes to um, visiting someone that just lost a loved one, that's some of, some of the best things you can do, which is why I know um, there's a rule, I don't know if it's a written rule or something that I was just told from my father, that when you go to a house of mourning, you let the person that's in mourning talk first. You don't say a word till them, because it's their room, their place to talk. Sometimes I am asked whether my having been a rabbi has had any effect on my practice as a physician. I think it has. As a physician, I try to fix people's pains to relieve them of their suffering. But as a rabbi, I learn to share in people's pain. Wow, what a powerful statement. When you share in someone's pain, there's a certain sympathizing that we do that is done. Not say we, I'm not a rabbi but that are as able to be put into place that can make the situation easier to deal with for that person. As advanced as modern medicine is, there are still times when I cannot fix things, but I can always be there to share. I can attest to this form of personal experience. When my wife died, and like we were saying before, Dr. Torsky had remarried, um, so this is his second wife that he, that he leaves behind now, Friends visited me, and when we spoke about my wife, I would cry. I began to notice that some friends stopped visiting me. Evidently, they felt awkward seeing me cry about not being able to say anything comforting. So they simply avoided me. But I needed to cry, and it was not enough to cry by myself. I needed someone to feel along with me. 
Since I often attend meetings for recovering alcoholics, I began asking whether any of the attendings would spare a few minutes after the meeting. Four or five people generally stayed on, and I would talk to them about my loss and cry. No one got up and left. They were willing to listen to me and absorb my pain, which is something that I, I've said. I know when I, when I was in grad school, uh, one, of my, one of my teachers tried convincing the class that AA meetings were a thing of the past, and there's time to move on from that. And I spoke up. And I, while I do think it actually affected me in, in the long run there, there in the school where, where I was, but, and I would do it again if I'd been put, if put into that same situation. But the teacher was trying to say how it's not the way that we go, but we don't, we don't call the person an addict anymore. Uh, we, the, the person is going through substance abuse disorder, and it's a different way of going about things. And we're not going to get into that discussion now of whether it's a addiction or substance, substance abuse or a person is going through. But I did feel that there was something, and having attended AA meetings um, myself, I felt that it was very, very helpful. And what I noticed was there's a certain community and a camaraderie that comes about through these meetings that is so helpful for just knowing there are other people there for you. Period. End of story. So whether a person is going to be cured through AA, probably doesn't make a difference. But the concept of what it does and how it can help of knowing there are other people around there that are, are in the same situation as you are. I remember even hearing when I was an intern and I had to attend AA meetings to sort of get the concept of what meetings are, I found out that American Airlines has their own AA meetings. Comcast, one of the phone and internet services here in the Northeast, have their own AA meetings. State troopers, at least here in the state of Connecticut, have their own AA meetings, which is great because you need to have like-minded people that are struggling the same way you are. What do they do? How do they go through it? The concept of meeting with other people. So here is Dr. Torsky who would go to meetings for both personal and professional reasons, but yet he had people that were just there to be able to share. He was able to share his own sorrow with. You see how far he went. Their experience in recovering from alcoholism had made them emotionally receptive. They were not frightened away by my crying. They listened with great empathy. And that was just what I needed. Sometimes we are privileged to be of actual help to people who are grieving. But even when there is nothing we can do to help people understand our children and recognize unique ways in which each child is endowed. I'm sorry, I read that wrong. Sometimes we are privileged to be of actual help to people who are grieving. But even when there is nothing we can do to help people... We can feel for them and with them. That too is a form of help. It has been said that, and I love this line, I always love this line, I've heard, I've heard him say this, joy sheared is doubled and sorrow sheared is halved. That's exactly what we want. We want our sorrow to be halved when we have other people around us, when we're sharing with others. And then when we you know, I, in, my, in my head, I have, the, I have this picture of um, this, this TV show I used to watch of, of called Friends that, um, you know, you have uh, certain people that would be very excited over, over certain things. And when they share that excitement with others, how they sort of jump for joy. And that's the sort of picture I have in my head when it comes to cheering. Uh, joy sheared is doubled. 
And you, you see that when, let's say, by a stadium, that when you have someone score a touchdown or hit a home run, how everyone gets involved in it, and all of a sudden there is quadruple the amount of noise or more than that in certain places just by the fact of sharing that and being involved with others emphasizing with people empathizing with people and sharing their feelings excuse me I'm reading that wrong empathizing with people and sharing their feelings is unique spiritual human trait whether the feelings shared are joy or grief the fulfillment of the sharing itself is a source of true happiness. I think that's the recap. The recap is the last sentence there. Whether the feelings shared are joy or grief, the fulfillment of the sharing itself is a source of true happiness. Thank you so much in joining me in my podcast and in being able to learn with me the teachings of Rabbi Dr. Torsky. May you still be rested. We will continue with compassionate parenting the next time we meet. If you have any questions, comments, critiques, or concerns, please reach out at koshercounseling at gmail.com.